Welcome to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher, and my interview today is with Alexandra Yeko. It's an interview I did in 2007, some uh, 14 years ago. I was just starting the Stories Project, and Alexandra had graciously agreed to sit down with me and share her story. At that point, we'd been friends and co-workers for 15 years. I knew that she'd immigrated from Poland, but I had never bothered to ask her about her childhood. So as she began to tell her story, I was overwhelmed to realize how little I really knew about this woman I called a friend and the hardships she and her family had been subjected to. It was in January of 1970s, and like good old immigrants, we came to New York City. It was my mom, my dad, and my older sister. The political scenario in Eastern Europe was brewing uh, for several years, and this was the last purging or the last exodus of the Jews from Eastern Europe, or in particular from Poland, that was reminiscent of the exodus before World War II started. And of course, everybody remembers that during the war, about six million Jews perished in the variety of ways, but concentration camps were the predominant places of, of death. And my, both of my parents, who were young teenagers when the war broke out, uh, lost 90% of their families. So as young people after the war, when they married and, and started their own family, they hoped that the environment of support in Poland for the Jews would be strong, and yet in the mid-60s, late-60s, it, be, it became obvious that the environment was becoming quite anti-Semitic. And there was a succession of instances that led to the announcement by the general secretary of, of Polish party. And you may recall Poland was a socialist bloc country, very much beholden to, to Soviet Union. And uh, the general secretary said that if there are any Jews or Jew sympathizers, that they are welcome to leave, they would have to resign or uh, they would have to give up their citizenship. And my parents were one of those folks who decided that it was probably the last opportunity that we had as a family to leave, and we had to leave everything behind, our home, our furnishings, our belongings, pretty much left with our suitcases. Uh, my sister at the time was at the Jagiellonian University, and the inspiration to leave was pretty much uh, cemented when KGB approached her to denounce her friends and start reporting upon them. And my sister came home, this was the end of her first year in medical school, and said, um, this is what's happening, everyone is pretty traumatized, and I was approached, and my dad said, that's it, that does it, we are out of here. So we filed for passports, and within three months, we f my sister finished her first year, this was June, and uh, by the end of September, we were on the train out of Poland. So the circumstances were fairly tense, and they were very politically inspired. Of course, the country was very divided. It was, you know, the Jews and the anti-Semites. And the Jews numbered some 10,000 only. It was a very minuscule number, and yet 
the uprising was fairly strong and the evidence of anti-Semitism was very astonishing to all of us because we thought that that was pretty much eradicated with uh, the end of World War II. But that not being the case, we left and we, not unlike many other refugees, we ended up in Vienna, stayed there for four months and that was a pretty interesting time for us. And then in uh, January of 1970, we, we came to the United States, as I said, to New York City, and began our life as immigrants there. And it was difficult. There wasn't anything pretty about it, you know, to be uprooted from your own country. Uh, you know, all of us had our own traumas, but at the age of 16, everything is traumatic. You know, leaving your sweetheart, leaving your friends, leaving the place you knew, leaving your school, leaving everything that you knew behind, starting afresh, but starting not, you know, it wasn't this integrated environment where everyone was sort of accommodating. It was an environment where life went on and you had to find your way in it. And granted, you know, New York City is wired for immigrants. They get it. They understand how it, how it works. And yet, when you, again, when you're almost 17 and you are going to high school and you don't understand anything, the English that you acquired in the Berlitz school just got you through the door and that's it. Um, everything was difficult. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories program. And my interview today is with Alexandra Yeko. Alexandra is describing her experience of leaving Poland at 16 years old, a refugee and fleeing to New York City with her mom and dad and her sister. Here she remembers the day she and her family were forced to leave their homeland. They made it to be as ugly as possible. There was people who were thrown off the train and left all overnight in this old forgotten train station with babies and no food and the trainmen only once a day. So, yes, they made it very uncomfortable for people. They could search you. You couldn't have more than 80, equivalent of $80 on each person. And if, you know, they could search you, and if they found any jewelry or any more money or anything that was not um, allowed, they could, they could throw you off the train. And the trick was that they didn't allow you to buy tickets for that final journey until the day your passport expired. So you became a citizen of the world. You, you became a non-entity. You have just resigned your citizenship as a Paul, and you were not physically accepted by any other country. So being a refugee for those couple hours on, on the train ride was very tense because anything could have happened to you. I mean, I, I'm not suggesting that people were shot or that they were taken to Siberia. It wasn't that bad. But the memories of those who have experienced uh, a similar circumstance some 20 years uh, prior really played into the fear. I mean, my, my parents, their eyes were wide. They didn't know what to expect. We had with us exactly what we were supposed to have, not a dollar more, not a ring more, not nothing. It was just... We had three pairs of underwear, two shirts. I mean, down to the line, my father wasn't taking any chances. So when did you know that you were free? When, when we crossed the Czech border. It was right around midnight um, on, on the train ride. 
and it was a heady experience. I mean, we all cried. It, it was so emotional. And then we arrived in Vienna early in the morning, and these wonderful people met us at the train station, and they were from the from different um, uh, relief organizations. There were the Lutheran services, there were the Jewish relief, um, there were people from the uh, Denmark embassy, from, um, from uh, Israeli embassy. And, you know, depending on where you, your, where, what your intention was, you were taken by different groups and you were taken to little hotels and you were fed and you were taken care of. And, then sort of processed the next day, and depending where you were going, you were either leaving for that destination the next day or you were staying like we did in Vienna for a while, which was really just an interesting experience. How does that, how does that experience leaving your, your homeland, how, does, how, does that, how, how has that impacted your life? Mm. Not, not in the best of ways. You, you sort of, you know, working through that is, is not an easy thing to do. You sort of feel less than. So it's, uh, it's, <clears throat> it's not easy. There was, there was a thing that happened <clears throat> years later that was very good. In order to sort of, uh, uh, continue on and you know make it make it through the trials and tribulations of being an immigrant um, you, you sort of make a little place in your heart that you can fill with whatever feeling I chose to fill it with disdain was disdain for my heritage so consequently I did not teach my son to speak Polish I did not want to speak Polish I communicated in English only, even if it was not a very good English at the time. I didn't uh, come close to any Polish people. I wanted to really integrate myself into the, you, you know, to the American fabric of life. And I did not yearn for creating my own little Poland. It was the opposite. I wanted to relieve myself of my heritage because if they didn't want me and they dumped me then why would I ever want them back and it took me years to to understand that although that was a reasonable defense mechanism and it was it served me well to sort of propel me to some positive action it also left certain scars and it wasn't until um some 15 or 16 years ago when I, by accident, uh, ended up about six hours from my hometown. My husband and I went on our honeymoon, and we went to Greece, and we were going to go to Vienna, and that was the time that the war in Yugoslavia broke out, and it wasn't safe for us to go on a train. So other arrangements were being made and we flew into Vienna and backtrack in a car to an area in Czechoslovakia to do some sightseeing, and my husband went hunting. And I looked on the map, and I swear I lost it. I just turned into a puddle of tears. I looked on the map, and the whole thing was a surprise for me. 
it was a surprise trip. Mm. Long story, but uh, be it as it may, it was a surprise trip. So I unfold the map, and and Doug is showing me where we are, and I look up north, and I am within, you know, a finger length from my hometown, and. I said, I have to go and I have to go to my hometown. That's all there is to it. So Doug made arrangements for me to go with a guide. And I went, um, uh, we drove in a car, this gentleman and I, from part of Czechoslovakia for eight hours to my hometown. We drove, it was um, the evening of All Saints Day. So it was very dark and all the little cemeteries were aglow with with lights and arrived in my little hometown uh, about nine o'clock at night and I called my girlfriend the poor thing I thought I was going to give her a heart attack but uh, I explained to her where I was and she came and she brought with her many of our friends we spent all the entire night we stayed up talking and then the next day I had to turn around and go back and the door has opened I, it felt like the door was opening for some healing for me. So a couple years later, my sister and I went back to Poland, this time on a planned trip. And we went back to my little hometown, and my friends came. And what really touched my heart is that many of them came with little souvenirs that they held on to all these years that I gave them. Wow pretty important so good healing if you're just tuning in you're listening to the immigrant stories program alexandra yako and her parents and sister fled poland in 1970 when alexandra was 16 they started over in new york city building a life that bear little resemblance to the one they'd left behind when you came as a family, do you remember how you kept your family together? Your family, your mm-hmm. your mother and father, and well, you know, our our uh, family structure was very traditional. The father was the final authority, and the mother was the one that navigated between the ultimate uh, authority and and the two very strong girls. My mother was extremely generous and giving and kind, and uh, so it it was in her nature to to uh, accommodate all the all the strong wills in in the household. Supporting each other was very important. We all pulled our resources together. Uh, I worked in a bakery, and my sister worked in an office. We rented an apartment with an additional bedroom so that. We had a little bit more space, and that bedroom cost X a number of dollars a month, and my sister and I pitched in to help uh, with with the rent payments. My parents did not take lightly to any sort of deviations from what they would expect of us to do in Poland, so there were no there were really no allowances from from that, and although. My new friends were doing this, that, or the other. There was absolutely no question in my mind that I couldn't even ask for those things, like going away with friends or, or at certain point, perhaps living on my own. I mean, that was totally out of, out of the discussion. That was a moot point. 
and helping one another. I became, very quickly, I became the sort of the conduit, the, the translator between the new and the old. I would go with my father to the bank and do his banking. I would go to, you know, the shoemaker. I would go to the post office. And, you know, whatever needed translations or whatever needed a front, a presentation of the old and the new, I was the conduit. Um, and my sister had other assignments in the family that was mine. I was the public front. And whether I could speak the language or not, it didn't matter. I ended up with that job. <laughs> Did you like that job? I don't even think I questioned it. It wasn't a matter of liking or not liking. You know, you all have prescribed roles within a family. Mine was to be the public front, which was very odd because my father was, in terms of his persona and the way he led his life, was a very powerful figure. And he was very successful in socialist Poland. He had his own business. And he was very proud of being able to support his family in a very comfortable way. And all of a sudden, we are coming to a totally different country where it breaks down for him. So he has to ask his children to be, in many ways, in support of him in his role, which was not an easy thing to do. But we all understood that. It was, he didn't have to ask. It was sort of an unspoken understanding of what we needed to do in order to continue that um, sort of that personification of his role and my mom's role. We never deviated from that. I don't ever remember bucking that, you know, old established path of different roles assigned in a family and who was doing what. And But it was difficult for my father not to be able to be the ultimate sort of, um, you know, the, the stamp for the entire family. He needed our support. Were you aware of that at 16? Oh, of course, of course. I mean, at 16, you are. And also, having gone through the experiences that we did, it makes you very wise to the world very quickly. It's the innocence is lost. You, you are not having to go to work. I have never worked in my entire life. Yes, I helped around the house. I had chores. I did a lot of the things. I mean, being lazy was not an option, but needing to actually get up in the morning and go to work for someone else was a totally foreign notion. And yet, it seemed like the most natural thing to do. You adapt to the circumstances in a way that you don't really understand. You just do them by virtue of needing things to be done. Right. And, and so intuitively, you find your way around. What, what did you bring with you from Poland when you came? Books. Um, books. Pretty much that's all was allowed. What were the traditions that you, you brought? The, the traditions were varied because as Jews in Poland, we were very few. And in our town, there were only 10 families. And, and the town was at the time, you know, some 45,000 people. So what we brought with us is the ability to celebrate both the Roman Catholic the, the, you know, the, the Christian holidays as well as the Jewish holidays because we would have Passover and our friends next door in Poland would have Easter and we would 
just cross over and, and go to each other's homes and celebrate both. So it really was a very sort of an open field of celebrating anything that came our way. And that flexibility paid dividends over time because it wasn't as if we were so deeply rooted in any one tradition. But I think freedom translates in many different ways. We weren't militant in Poland. It's not as if anyone in our family stood in front of, you know, a group of public and proclaimed one way or the other what we felt and what we wanted from life. We sort of were, you know, just your common citizen who happened to be born under a different star and therefore there were certain elements of our of our being that, that were not appreciated. But by and large, we were, you know, just very quiet people. We didn't have any huge political aspirations in Poland. So it was interesting that how freedom translated for us. I had this very um, brought home to us from day one a huge pride of our nationality, of being a Jew, but yet total clear understanding that we were not any more special or any more, you know, super known to, to the universe than the Baptist or the Catholics or anyone else in our, in our midst. So I didn't come away with any sense of superiority, but rather just being proud of who I was, but having a very open heart to all the others. And yet the freedom that came from coming to United States was sort of like a cool shower on a hot day. You could actually express yourself in so many different ways without worrying that perhaps someone would mis misinterpret it. I remember I, I was a young teenager, maybe 11 or 12, and my father gave me um, a Star of David for my birthday. Uh, it was a little gold Star of David um, on a something that looked like uh, a scroll and was very pretty, and I wore it on a gold chain, and I wore it, um, it was sort of in your face, like this is who I am, and I'm very proud of who I am, and there was no secret, I mean, my God, we live in a small town, it's not as if with a name like Ida Rosenberg, there was going to be a big surprise of who I was, but um, it was important to me to wear it, and I wore it with a great sense of pride, and I wore it on top of all my clothes, not under. And then the night that we were crossing the, the border on the train from Poland when we were leaving and we crossed the border uh, into Slovakia onto Austria and there was a change of guards on the train and the Austrian um, uh, conductor came into our compartment and said, welcome to Austria, you're free now. Without without really giving it a lot of thought, and yes, at 16, you're pretty melodramatic, as I'm sure you remember raising your children. I I took the chain and the Star of, Star of David off, and it, it was a moment of realization for me that I didn't have to tell the world who I was. I was free now. I could be anything I wanted to be. And that sense of freedom, and it was very symbolic and, and very, um, again, totally unpredetermined un um, act of 
st- of just a clear statement to myself that I didn't have to prove to anyone else for as long as I live, hopefully, who I was and why I was who I was. I was who I was. I was fine with that. And I was free now. And it was probably the most single important act of my life. Because you'd just been escorted from your home. Mm -hmm. Freedom was something that didn't really was well described to anyone. Um, And yet you feel it. It's, it's, It's a very real sensation. You're free now. You you are behind. You are you have just crossed the iron curtain. You're free now. Well, if I'm free now, then I'm free. Then I can be anything I want to be, and I don't need to tell people, and I don't need to introduce myself as one or the other. I can just be. Just being able to be is a huge thing. That was Alexandra Yeko. Alexandra moved to the Valley in 1977 and spent the next 33 years helping students like her young self realize their dreams of a college education. During her career at Colorado Mountain College, she helped raise nearly $40 million for students' scholarships and assistance. After retiring in 2010, she went on to help Valley View Hospital raise $12 million for the Callaway Young Cancer Center. Thanks to Alexandra and refugees like her who have fled their homelands to start a new life here and in the process made life better for all of us. You've been listening to the Immigrant Stories program. For more on Immigrant Stories, go to our website, immigrantstories.net, or subscribe online wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.